Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime documentary or series, and I talk to the people who made them. We dive deep into the backstories and get answers to questions raised by what we just watched. This week, I sit down again with Unsolved Mysteries director Marcus A. Clark. This time, we talk about Berkshire's UFO. Episode 5. Over 50 years ago, residents of Berkshire County, Massachusetts were traumatized by encounters with an unexplained flying object. In this episode, they come forward with dramatic testimony about the baffling events that took place the night of September 1st, 1969. Before this happened, I was a non-believer in, in any of that stuff. It just no way. Flying saucers and I just did not believe it. I drove all the way into Great Barrington and pulled over where our store was, it's Main Street, turned the car off and looked at my girlfriend and said, what just happened? So I ran in and I told my husband and he said to go up and report it to the radio station. And I went in and Tom Jay, who is the uh, director of uh, WSBS, started to laugh and he said, you and Mary must be out drinking again. He said, I think it must have been swamp gas. I said, this was no swamp gas time. And I explained it. A few hours later, he was inundated with calls from other people. A note to listeners, this podcast episode contains spoilers. So make sure to watch the entire Unsolved Mysteries episode and then listen on. Before you hear my discussion with Marcus, here's a conversation I had with my real-life partner in crime, my husband, Kevin Flynn. Kevin's an Emmy Award-winning former TV journalist, my true crime co-author and co-host of our other true crime podcast, Crime Writers On. He also hosts the podcast, These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast. Take a listen to our breakdown of the episode and reactions to the real-life mystery behind it. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Rebecca. So episode five of Unsolved Mysteries, Berkshire's UFO. Classic. This is a classic Unsolved Mysteries Why case. is that? Well, you know, I love the crime, but only Unsolved Mysteries brings you stories of the supernatural. The unexplained the paranormal. Phenomena. Yeah, and they do the same good job with those stories as they do with the crime ones. Sure. I mean, absolutely. It's earnestly made. We're not assuming that this event did or didn't happen. We're just talking to the people that believed it happened, that witnessed it, that were there. I do like how they kind of play it down the middle. They're not pushing you one way or the other on whether to believe this actually happened. Right. They definitely give you a lot of people who believed it happened. September 1st, 1969, a whole lot of people had an encounter with a bright, glowing object. Mm -hmm. And there was even... A story about more than one abduction uh, with this UFO. Mm -hmm. Do you not agree that everybody they interview for this episode is credible in their telling of the story? I think they're very earnest. I, I think everybody who's speaking believes what they're saying. I don't think there's any uh, wink, wink, con people in here who are just trying to get some attention with a fabulous story. Mm. I mean, we do hear from Tom Warner, who is you know one of the residents of the mm -hmm. community, that there really is no upside in a town like this to being seen as like, you know, for lack of a better word, like the crazy guy with the UFO story. Mm -hmm. That it's actually uh, an incentive to not talk about it because 
You know everybody. And what do you think of this idea that so many of these people that we talk to, Jane, Tom, Melanie, they all kind of talk about not wanting to talk about it until Netflix came and said, yeah, we're going to tell your story. Yes, I, I love the uh, the family where they still refer to mom as mother. Yes. <laughs> mother. <laughs> uh, they all seem to validate each other's stories mm. or, or their retelling of what they remember from 69. Yeah. Well, I do want to talk about some of those stories. Uh, we have Jane, one of the heroes of the episode, talking to us about driving back from Stockbridge to her home and encountering what she thought was a police traffic stop. Very, very bright lights on the highway. Mm -hmm. And she was with a friend, and they both saw this object. This huge object floated right there, and I couldn't see the end of it from the right or from the left. I can't tell you whether it was bronze or whether it was silver, whether it was gold. It was immense, and it was tall, but the the bottom part, I, I, I didn't see windows, I didn't see any, and I, most of all, there was no noise. Now, her story is sort of followed by the idea of it flies away, but then there's another sighting of it just a couple miles down the road. Like, this UFO, this object is traveling from place to place. Right. What did you think of Jane and her story? Yeah, I mean, I think, and I think it fits in sort of with everybody else's story because one of the problems with UFO st stories in general is that it's always seen by one person and that it's this bright light in a big open space where you would assume that more people would be able to see it. Mm. So the fact that multiple people saw something at the, roughly the same time in the same area makes it way more intriguing. So I think that her story is good because it backs up a lot of what other people are going to say. Yeah. And the next thing that we hear is that Tom, who had, his little boy was Tommy, uh -huh. was coloring with crayons in his home. Uh, he, he had to stay inside the lines. That's right. He, was, he had to stay mean, inside the lines, yes. His meanie next door neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> Good detail. It was a, a very strong detail, uh, like would admonish him for staying inside the lines. And so he was at the next door neighbor's house with the older sister who really, you know, they weren't close. She had no reason to sort of like collude with him. He was mm. friends with her sister. Uh, she watched him and he describes what seems an awful lot to me like the abduction scene from Close Encounters of the Third Kind where he walks in the yard, a beam of light hits him, and next thing you know, he's frozen and disappears. That is a very scary story. Really creepy. Yeah. No, I just mean terrifying. The idea that he's trying to run and he physically can't and then slam back with his arms. And it just, the tableau of it is very scary. I just got a, a feeling that something was wrong. And I didn't know what it was, but it, it just gave me chills. Off to my left, there was a rock and there was a path. And we were right on the path here and the rock was just off to my left. And as I turned slowly, I turned and a UFO dropped right out of the sky right in front of me. And a beam came on me. And as the light was on me, my hands jerked back like this. And it's like air got sucked out of me. The light came around him this way towards his left and the next thing I know he disappeared and in a blink and a flash I was gone where did Tommy go can't find him what do you think of that it's a tough detail to swallow but there's so believable saying hmm Next story we hear is from Melanie, who's over at Lake Mansfield with her family. Mm -hmm. They see the bright lights. They see the UFO. And, of course, her dad wants to chase it. Did yeah. He, was your dad like that? Would he like want to like chase something that you saw on the road? Well, he wouldn't take us to Dairy Queen. So <laughs> that would have been a great night altogether. But yeah. uh, obviously a very inquisitive family. And it, it, it shows that whatever it was, they did not fear it. Well, Melanie you know? did. Well, okay, she did. She was She's like, that. don't chase it, Dad. <laughs> don't do it. This abduction theory uh, and these abduction stories around UFOs, they do have certain elements in common. And one of the things that has come up in pop culture, especially I think of a movie like Close Encounters, is that aliens would be fascinated by studying children. Yeah. Is that not a very scary story or a very scary experience whether it's just believed to be true or actually happened to then carry with you through your entire childhood that you were 
abducted and then dropped back in a field and then somehow had a connection with these other kids who were also in the craft. Yeah, and again, it's because it, 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 there's a group of people. Again, it wasn't one kid who said it. If it was Tommy alone, you see this guy getting interviewed and you would, it'd be very easy to dismiss him as a crank or to say something else bad happened to him as a kid and play pop psychologist and say he is conflating uh, a real trauma with a fake trauma. But then how do you explain other people at the same time, same date, with variations of the same story? One of the things that struck me was the other Tom story. They were Mm -hmm. the family on the Sheffield Bridge. Yeah. And they describe, um, you know, driving down Route 7, going to the Sheffield Bridge. There's a lot of veracity to his memory as proven by the fact that he talks about earlier that day being in a horse show, and then we Mm -hmm. see a photo of that horse show. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I do think there's a lot of groundwork being laid that this isn't just whole cloth. This whole day was a figment of everyone's imagination. There were real things that happened. They know the date. They know it was Labor Day. They know it was 90-plus degrees. He describes... You know, wildlife going bananas just before their encounter with the craft. The birds, the, you know, bugs, everything, the frogs going nuts. And then there's also a description of after the missing time is over, the scene being set and it being wrong. Grandma never drives. Now Mm. grandma's behind the wheel of the car kind of stuff. Again, very scary. It is. It's the stuff of nightmares. Yeah. But if you're someone who likes these kinds of stories, whether it's from the X-Files, I was a big X-Files fan, or you you follow movies or literature where they talk about these kinds of cases. It is those details that bring the unease to it. The fact that things come back and they're, they're reminders of something bad happening. Hmm. It's not like you woke up from a dream hmm. and there's a cold sweat. They There ends up being, in their world, physical evidence that something happened to them. And yeah, being on the wrong side of the car, (laughs) if you don't drive and you wake up behind the wheel, then you're like, either I came from a hell of a party or something else happened. It's kind of weird. All right, so we do get some police interaction here. Of course, there are no police reports. Uh, Uh There's no reference to this in any of the archive newspapers. Is this just a question you think There was an incident of... uh, Beer bottles on somebody's That's right. Very important news. Very important community news. Was this a question of not being taken seriously or was this a question of, you know, like, how do you report something like that? A bunch of people saw something and you you can't follow up. Or was it just a question of, like, this is silly. We're not going to put it in the newspaper. Is this a story that you would have wanted to follow up on? Well, I can see it going two ways, Mm. you know, because do you answer the phone and think these are a bunch of cranks? I think after the second phone call. If you got one, mm. then you'd have to at least report that people were reporting this. Right, right. I mean, but that's a very sort of logical next step. And people aren't exactly always logical after something traumatic. So it's easy to look back and say, I would have done these five things. Mm. You know, they're still kind of stumbling around amazed at what they saw. Well, fast forward, Eddie, who now runs the local gas station, his dad had been the Sheffield police chief in 1969. He remembers his dad getting reports about this. But he does say, you know, if this happened, this is something we're not supposed to be talking about because everybody thinks we're crazy or something. And then he also, Eddie, points out that there is current day, and we've talked about this on other podcasts, Mm -hmm. current day reporting about UFO sightings by military pilots that are being treated now as incidents that need to be investigated. Right. And the frustration that this wasn't a thing that anyone could talk about or take seriously versus now, you know, whether or not those UFOs that those pilots saw were a quirk of their instrumentation or something, no one really knows, but they do know that the pilots agree they keep seeing something and that it needs to be talked about. objects that are unidentified. Yes, and Mm. it needs to be talked about, it needs to be reported, it needs to be looked into, you understand the frustration. These people all seem very traumatized that yeah. they have not been allowed to tell this story for decades. And they're carrying it with them. And it, it, it seems like it hurts. You want to be believed, mm. right? When you're a victim of a crime, you want to be believed. And in a way, they went through something that was very traumatic to them. And on a very personal level, the idea that people do not believe them and what that says about them that they're worried about and the idea like you know Tommy said that you know when he went to high school he was the outcast yeah and 
probably for this reason, that he's the one who said he was abducted by a UFO on September 1st, 1969. Hmm. What do you think happened? Do you believe this was a real close encounter? Oh, man. I mean, like anywhere else, in any other sort of context, I would be like, not a chance. The fact that there's like this community of folks that saw similar things at the same time, the idea of sort of like getting their stories together ends up being fairly compelling. I am inclined to not believe that people from another planet came to the Berkshires and targeted a couple of kids and then disappeared. Hmm. But I believe that they believe something happened and that probably something did. Bright lights, something in the sky. I don't want to be the, the Debbie Downer here, but that's why it's an unsolved mystery. Right. It's not ever clear right. when it comes to UFOs. Right. You know I'm a very cynical person. Yeah. I, I don't believe in psychics. I don't believe in all that stuff. Part of me really, really wants to believe in UFOs. I do think there's a very um, hopeful thread in feeling like less alone when uh-huh. you sort of talk about UFO stories. I don't know what happened to any of these people in the Berkshires, obviously. I do think something happened to mm-hmm. them. I think they had yeah. they had a shared experience, they had a collective experience, and they had different independent experiences that corroborate each other's memories. Yeah. Don't know what it was. I tend to lean toward either interdimensional travel, maybe not interplanetary travel. I don't know. Maybe it's just because we watch Dark on Netflix that I'm sort of in that headspace. <laughs> but yeah, it's just hard to look in these people's eyes and, and not think something happened to them, right? Yeah. I don't think they're crazy. I don't think they're they're lying. Right. So what does that leave? An unsolved mystery. An unsolved mystery. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Kevin. You're welcome. Thanks again to Kevin Flynn, my favorite person to watch Netflix with. Now, here's my interview with director Marcus A. Clark. Marcus, it is so exciting for me to talk to you about this episode. Thank you so much. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be back talking with you about the Berkshire UFO episode. It's a classic Unsolved Mysteries kind of episode. I'll be honest, it's my favorite kind of Unsolved Mysteries episode, the unexplained (laughs) phenomena. I'm curious, directing this episode, where are you coming at it from in terms of your belief around UFOs, in terms of your interest around the topic of UFOs? I'm really curious to hear your backstory on this. Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, I've been interested in the subject of UFOs for for years to be honest since a kid and and honestly one of the first you know moments of being exposed to the UFO phenomenon and the mythology uh the lore is actually from unsolved mysteries because I used to watch as a kid um with my parents and so the paranormal stories were always a, a big part of the series of the show of the brand um you always got the missing persons you got the kind of the gruesome murders the killings this and that um but the UFOs and the paranormal stuff was always just fascinating to me. Um, you know, the possibilities of what if, you know, what's out there, um, what do we not know? And so having the opportunity to direct this particular episode was extremely gratifying. It was something I was really passionate about and very much into. Um, not be- only because of my interest in the subject matter, but, you know, this subject is looked at uh, so skeptically uh, in, in a lot of regards. And I really wanted to approach this episode with a serious lens. This is an important topic. I mean, yes, it's paranormal and people think it's a little bit of a stretch, but um, these experiences are happening to people. It's been very well documented and, and reported for, for decades. And it's something that I think needs a little bit more attention. And, and when people take it seriously and, and think about what's happening here in this phenomenon, I think a lot more people would be interested. Now, this night back in 1969, the eyewitnesses all had similar experiences in terms of what they witnessed. Some of them had more experiences than others, but there were also some differences. I'm curious if you can speak to whether or not you think everyone is talking about the same thing or potentially different things. Uh, What is your sense of that having interviewed all of these witnesses? Yeah, I think that's that's a really good question. You know, from talking to everybody and doing all these interviews, it it appears that everyone was seeing the same event on September 1st in 1969. However, this happened in the Berkshires. And so these sightings span Sheffield, Stockbridge, Great Barrington. This is a large kind of geographical area on the East Coast. And so as this object 
is traveling through these areas, I believe that everyone saw the same event, but not necessarily the same craft or crafts. If you listen to Jane Green's story, which is kind of where the episode opens, she describes seeing one object, and that's why she pulls off to the side of the road. She's seeing one very large, immense object where she can't see the ends of it from the left or from the right. And she describes it as being just about hovering about eye level to her. She's right in front of this thing. And so she gets a very good look at it. She gets a very good view of it. Um, this is a moment that that is burned in her brain, burned in her memory. And so that's one instance. We then track the craft from there to Tom Warner's house. And he also sees one craft and he has this interaction where he feels like he's called outside. He sees this thing. He can describe it. Again, it's, it's a little bit higher in the sky, but it's right in front of him and it's interacting with him in a way. When we get to Melanie, she's also describing one craft and she has her own experience. But Tom Reed's is very interesting. And I wish it was a little bit more clear in the episode, but he's seeing multiple crafts. Hmm. He's seeing one object on the left of his car. He's seeing another object on the right of his car, another two objects. Um, one has a particular shape to it and and is described almost as a turtle shell on its side. Um, and the others are kind of these orbs that he describes that, that seemingly are, are somewhat formless and they're kind of just tumbling over each other as he describes it. And so what I think is really interesting and really important is in order to see the full picture of what's happening in this event, you really have to combine all the different accounts and the different stories. Each of them have a different piece of the puzzle on what happened on this day. None of them have the complete picture. And so the best I can say is, is that there seems to be a larger object, which you could maybe want to call a mothership for lack of a you know better term at this point, in which other smaller crafts were coming out of and Tom Reed gets to see all of these different things mm. and he has his own interaction. And so they're nuanced and they're slightly different, but clearly this event, these, these crafts were moving on a trajectory, on a path and people had different vantage points of kind of this, this same phenomenon. Tom Warner's abduction story is so similar to the abduction scene in Close Encounters of the Third Kind of the mm -hmm. child who mm -hmm. runs out of the house. I'm wondering, do you happen to know whether or not that scene uh, was inspired by his story? Or just is that, I mean, I know that there are very similar abduction stories that have kind of traveled through our culture, but the, his story just tracks so closely with it. The not being able to move, the being frozen in the spotlight, the sudden disappearance. Did you notice that when you were talking to him about this story? Um, I did notice some similarities, but not necessarily to that film. You know, the accounts that people have reported for years and for decades do all kind of track in similar fashion, in similar ways to what Tom is describing. For people who are familiar with UFO lore and the mythology, the Travis Walton story, um, which inspired the movie Fire in the Sky, that is actually the closest depiction of many of the details that Tom Warner describes. And in that story, that event happens in front of his friends and so they're and co-workers and so there's a witness there. Very similar to Tom Warner where Jane Shaw actually witnesses what's happening to him. And if you notice, what she's witnessing is just slightly different from what he's experiencing. Mm. Um, and so that makes, you know, that makes this moment really interesting, really dynamic. And really confusing as to what's actually happening here. Um, she describes him as running in place. Hmm. You know, and this is, for, for Unsolved Mysteries, what I remember and recall growing up with the show is, you know, the reenactments would have, you know, these frames and these moments of pure terror, of pure uncertainty. And it would just make you feel incredibly uncomfortable on the inside. And whether or not you remembered the whole episode, you always remembered those moments and those shots and those scenes. And so for the UFO episode, for Berkshire's UFO, this was also really important. And so when you see him running in place, it's just this bizarre phenomenon, bizarre idea. Can you imagine feeling like you're running to get somewhere, but you're stuck? It's very similar to being, you know, in a dream sequence or, or, or something to that effect. And so that depiction um, was really important in terms of just how, how creepy and unsettling it is. 
Um, but then again, like you mentioned with the details, the light is holding him. The light stops him in his tracks. It also holds him down where he cannot move. Uh, these are things that have been described uh, for years from 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 thousands of people who've experienced or reported their experiences with encounters with UFOs. Tom Reed describes uh, some missing time after what it is that he saw outside the family car. And then he describes a scene where the members of the family are in the wrong place in the car when they sort of reappear. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, of course. This this is part of what makes Tom Reed's story uh, so peculiar and so mysterious. During their experience, their car gets whited out with light. And all of a sudden, the car just lit up inside, like the floodlights inside our car. I could see the dashboard. I could see the back of my grandmother's hair. I could see the radio. I remember this like it was yesterday. I could see my mother. Everything in the car was just like it was daylight. I mean, usually you hear some summer noises, and everything was deadly still and silent. Then all of a sudden, the uh, chirping started loudly. It erupted, crickets, everything. And that's the last I remember. That was it. This eruption of crickets and cadets and frogs and this, whatever it was seemed to affect the entire area, the wildlife. And then that's, bang, that's the last thing I remember being in the car. And they seemingly are taken onto this ship. Um, this is what Tom Reed remembers and describes. Uh, from a period of time, which is essentially three hours of missing time, he can account for about, I think, 13 to 15 minutes of what actually occurred. And so there's a huge discrepancy there. When they are then, quote unquote, placed back in the car, the vehicle itself is two to three miles from where they had originally pulled over, number one. And his mother and his grandmother are now in different seats. And his mother's in the passenger side. And his grandmother is in the driver's seat. Mm. Um, and as he reiterates, his grandmother never drove. Mm. And so here we have a situation where, in a traditional sense, you'd say, okay, that's human error, right? That's what we call it here, human error. A mistake has been made in putting these people back in the car. Again, like so that they wouldn't have known what actually took place and maybe they just fell asleep, who knows. Let's reset them back where they were. However, a mistake was made. And so you have to wonder again, when you're considering what are these phenomenon, what are these objects, is that human error? Or do aliens make mistakes too? You know, is it <laughs> alien error? You know, yeah. whatever it is, that that is a very interesting anomaly. Question about the credibility of all of these witnesses. As a mm -hmm. viewer, they all seem perfectly credible to me. And it's almost as if the slight differences in their stories don't detract from their credibility, but add to it because it's pretty clear that they're not all getting together uh, for wine once a week and recounting this over and over again and interacting with one another around these stories. What do you think about their about their credibility? Yeah, I mean, credibility is is incredibly important, obviously, but it's something, you know, I'm always looking for when I'm conducting interviews. I'm, I have a certain barometer I try to keep attention to when I think credibility might be slipping or people are getting creative with their stories. Um, I didn't sense any of that in these interviews. And I think that's really important. You know, these people, not only were they kids, so you have to remember they were, you know, 9, 10, 11 years old when this experience happened to them. So that's that's one factor. But then making that connection, feeling that connection with these guests that they're not, uh, you know, these are these are members of the community. Um, some of them are upstanding members of the community. Uh, they've lived their life without kind of talking about this stuff. Uh, a lot of these people did not know each other at the time of this event. And so there isn't really the type of opportunity for collusion that you might expect. And on top of that, without going too deep, not everybody is, is favorable towards each other. These are not mm -hmm. friends. And so all of these factors matter when you're trying to piece together the story. And in doing the interviews, in going deeper in the interviews, there are a few nuances and details that I can share that came out of those interviews that are so specific, I'm hard-pressed to think anybody would be able to to make it up or or to be, you know, to think that they would know that I would get to this part of the, the questioning. 
Hmm. Um, but there are these little details that recur and pop up. And one of those is um, everyone describes seeing a color that they have never seen before. Hmm. These crafts or one particular type of these crafts is a color that is impossible for these people to describe. And in fact, they describe it as a color they've never seen. And so if you, again, that's a, it's, a, it's mind boggling to, to even consider or entertain, you know, just think about it. Can you think of a color that you've never seen before? No. You'd, you'd be able to describe exactly. it in some way as warm or exactly. as cold or as sort of like a blue or sort of like a green or sort of like an orange. Absolutely cannot exactly. even imagine a color I've never seen, especially even knowing how color works. I mean, color right. is a product of the refraction of light. Mm-hmm. And if it's mm-hmm. a color you've never seen, then something is happening with light that is not something that is known in, you know, in our experience. Exactly. And so... That's one phenomenon that's very bizarre, and it's very consistent through each of the stories. The other is, and Tom Warner and Jane Green describe this specifically because their proximity to the craft, um, they were very close to it, both of them. And that is, the light is so bright and so glaring, however, it's not actually affecting their eyes. Hmm. They're not being forced to squint. They're not shielding their eyes. They They don't feel any you know, uh, disturbance in their eyes. They can see clearly. They can see the craft clearly. However, this light is just so vibrant. You know, I I'm I wonder, just because something is bright, does that mean it's light necessarily? Or is there some other process, um, some other phenomenon going on here? One thing I'll say is that the thing all of your interviewees seem to have in common here is a threat of trauma. Some of them seem still traumatized by whatever it was that happened to them way back in 1969. There's also the layer of trauma of not being believed or of feeling silenced or of feeling isolated. Did you experience that as well in talking to these people, that they all seem to be carrying the weight of this experience? It's not just something that happened. It's something that they carry. I think in this particular instance, the the, the quote-unquote trauma has played out in in different ways for each of our guests. I think firstly, again, reiterating that they were children when this happened. And so you have you have adults and other people who might not necessarily believe you, who think you're you saw your imaginary friend or you're just making it up, you're a kid. And so there's an intense amount of skepticism with this topic, with this subject matter. Um, there are people that as moment you, you you bring up this topic, they tune out. And so these people experienced that. These Our guests in this episode experienced that. And so there's a trauma from not being believed, from having this mind-boggling event happen to you um, where you're physically interacted with against your will. And there's a trauma that comes from that. And then there's a secondary trauma that comes from not being believed or not feeling comfortable, not being able to actually share your story for lack of... Uh, um, for fear, excuse me, of ridicule or, um, you know, people just simply making fun of you, being ostracized, Mm. being called a weirdo, um, being put down. And so, you know, as Jane Green describes um, so eloquently, they never spoke about it. This is an event they never wanted to talk about. Um, This is something they, they hid. And for a couple of our guests, this wasn't their first experience with UFOs. This wasn't their first experience with encounters. And so, all of these factors play a role in why you wouldn't want to discuss it or talk about it. Um, and I think that's really important because you asked about credibility. And, you know, Jane Green is 85 years old. I loved her. 85 years young. I love her, too. She's, she's my hero. And she wasn't a kid at the time, right? She was an adult. Correct. She was, she, she was a young woman, an adult at that time, yes. And she is someone I really connect with. She's someone I think the audience and the viewers connect with. She feels like someone's auntie or your grandma. Mm. She's warm. Um, she's, you know, she's lived her life. She's established. She's known in the community. She's a contributor. She's an upstanding citizen. She's intelligent. You know, nothing, no red flags in terms of her personality or her character. And, and someone like her, she has nothing to gain in this situation. Um, she was hesitant in the beginning to even talking about this and coming forward to share her story on camera, but she did because she thought it's important that people finally talk about this. Um, and so this is not glory for her. She's not looking for any opportunities after this. 
She's not looking for a book deal or like, you know what I mean? She yeah. is just living her life and wants to share her story. Um, Melanie is somebody I also gravitate towards. I have a lot of respect for her. And again, she's someone who has had multiple experiences um, with encounters with UFOs. This wasn't the first time for her. Uh, and I think that's really important to understand her level of distress um, and fear that she actually experienced because on September 1st in 1969, she had already seen UFOs prior to that. She had already had her own encounters prior to that. She had told her parents um, about these experiences prior to that. Um, and they did not believe her. They thought she was just a kid. They thought she was upset about something else. It was She was shunned for these for talking about these experiences. So then when this happens to her at Lake Mansfield, she is beyond terrified because she's she's like this is what I've been telling you essentially. Um and so, you know, again, she's got nothing to gain from this. In fact, she there is a lot of things that I can't share that we spoke about in the interview. Um she has been personally affected hmm. in a way that is uh that has stuck with her more so, in my opinion, than some of our other guests. Mm. And so it does not make her, She, you know, she says it in the episode, I am not proud of this. This is not something to be proud of. I don't want attention for this. And I believe her. It wasn't fun. It wasn't pleasant. It wasn't glorifying. And why would anyone want to go through it? I, I wouldn't want to be abducted. It's, it's not something that I would wish on anyone. So if, if somebody wants to doubt it, I don't blame them for doubting it. I really don't blame them for doubting it. You know, once you're there with the level of credibility of the people we're talking to and you have that connection, then you start to really think about what's happening here. Did anybody describe uh, in your interviews with them seeing any beings on these craft? We hear about lost time, obviously. We hear about sort of the rearranging of... Uh, family members in a car. We hear about, you know, disappearing from one place and then being returned to a different place. But what about interactions with beings of some kind? Yes. So uh, two of our guests did actually describe seeing beings. And it's really bizarre. It's, it is somewhat unsettling. But yes, they describe seeing beings. Um, the descriptions vary on, on that particular detail, on what type of you know, if they were to describe what they actually saw. Uh, and those descriptions range from your typical smaller gray alien, you know, large head, large, dark, deep black eyes, uh, seemingly emotionless, seemingly clinical, and, you know, almost rigid, cold is, is the words I would use to describe based on the interviews. Um, and then Tom Warner describes something that's a little bit more um, insect-like, if you will. Um, but even he had had mentioned that, you know, he didn't get a very good look at what this thing was. Um, he, he describes being moved from one part of the ship to another part of the ship. And in that process, he caught a glance of a being that looked like a large praying mantis, to be honest with you, um, insect-like, uh, you know, being. And, you know, Melanie has a similar experience of being taken somewhere. And Tom remembers seeing her on that craft. Um, and so, you know, it's just really a bizarre situation. Um, it's troubling that they were all kids at the time, um, with the exception of Jane Green, but she doesn't remember being taken anywhere in particular. Um, and it's troubling that there's this missing time factor. Um, as far as mysteries go, that's incredibly mysterious, bizarre. What's happening in this, in this, in this timeline of missing time? You know, it makes you, um, it almost makes you think about Men in Black, to be honest with you, um, where they're zapping people's you know brains and then putting a new memory in. It's like, you know, what's happening in that missing time section? Um, what are they not actually recalling? And as um, Nancy Reed mentions, Tom Reed's mother, it's like maybe it's better off that she doesn't remember what happened because they don't know what took place there. Um, and I'm sure your imagination can go like with the possibilities of what could potentially have happened, you know being taken against your will on an alien craft that's not responsible to anybody as far as we know. Now, there were a couple of witnesses that you did not interview for the documentary, right? Yeah, there were a couple of people that witnesses that we did not interview, a couple that we did that unfortunately did not make it into um, the episode. 
but also have incredibly compelling stories from the same event. One of those people is Kevin Titus. Uh, he is a uh, judicial magistrate in that area. And he was a kid as well uh, at that time. And he was playing with his friend on like almost like farmland property and where he lived and um, came about a corpse of, a, of what seemingly was a cow um, that was mutilated and mutilated in a very bizarre way where it was almost flipped inside out. However, there was no blood. There was like this pink kind of sludge he describes, but there was no real blood. And it looked like it kind of imploded and you just flipped, you know, flipped a cow inside out in a really bizarre way. Right after seeing and, and next to the next to this corpse of a cow were these burn marks in the grass, um, similar to what people might describe as crop circles. And at this moment, he's seeing all these different things with his friend. They're freaked out by it. And boom, they see this craft, this light, um, this object in the sky coming over the tree line. Um, and coming kind of like down a hill in his direction. And so he and his friend take off, they bolt out of there, and they're frightened. They're, they're totally frightened. They don't think they were being chased, but it felt like they were being chased because the object was moving in their direction and they're kids and they don't know any better. And so, again, that was within the path um, that we're describing. And, um, yeah, he's he's very vocal about talking about it. I see him also as as credible. And, you know, something happened on that day, on September 1st in 1969. And the question is, you know, what was this thing? What was occurring? And was anybody in any greater position of authority aware of, of this event, of this phenomenon? Earlier this year, there was some reporting around the Pentagon basically confirming that UFO videos taken by pilots in the Navy uh, showing unexplained flying objects were, in fact, unexplained flying objects. The videos have been out there for a while, but now there's just more of a look by the government even into what it is that these pilots have been experiencing, which, by the way, pilots have been reporting UFO encounters for decades. I'm curious what you make of this new movement toward treating these encounters as though they actually happened by the military of all institutions. I think probably an institution that we, in our understanding of the history of UFOs and the conspiracies around them, I think most people believe that if anybody wants to suppress this kind of story, it's the military. I'm just curious as to what you thought when you saw this reporting come out and how it is that this plays into the Berkshire story. I think it's important for people to understand that the announcement that the military has made, that the Navy has made in the Pentagon, is the most important announcement in our lifetimes and potentially um, in many lifetimes, in many generations. Uh, the subject of UFOs has been suppressed and minimized for decades on decades on decades. Uh, this article that came out a year ago, I think it was featured in the New York Times first, uh, is groundbreaking. Not only do, do are they acknowledging that UFOs exist, they've released footage. They've released actual video from the fighter jets. This is unprecedented. This isn't a leak. This isn't a hack. This isn't, you know, something that we cannot confirm. This is an official proclamation. It's an official announcement. It's what the community refers to as disclosure. It's a soft disclosure because it's kind of like, you know, they eased into it. They, you know, we got these videos. They're, oh, look, UFO. But no, this is the real thing. Um, this is a major announcement. And so people taking it casually or people still questioning whether or not the UFO phenomenon is real um, are simply in denial. And, you know, you can say that because we now have evidence. Uh, we have what we call proof. Now, the question begs, are these aliens? We don't know. You know, what's in those UFOs? We do not know. Right. They I mean, are we should, UFOs. We should say unidentified flying object is what UFO unidentified. stands for. Exactly. No one is claiming Unid aliens when they say I saw a UFO. That is a that's a leap that isn't always reasonable, but they're just unidentified. Correct. Correct. Um, and so you don't want to put that determination out yet. 
But we do know that UFOs are real, and we do know that the phenomenon that people have been describing and reporting for years is now real. Um, and so it was really important for me. I fought really hard to make sure we got that article into the film, um, and we actually used the video from those fighter jets because it is the most credible, the most tangible evidence that we have. And so my hopes was be that this episode, you know, think what you will about our guests or you know, what they're saying, but it is now fact that UFOs exist. And so we can put that conversation at least to bed. Do you think that if this were released at a different moment in our history when there weren't so many other tantalizing and important stories about our government that more people will be paying attention to that story? Yes, 100%. I mean, there's a lot of things going on in the world right now. There's a lot of different issues. But the biggest thing, to be honest, is that this subject has been suppressed for decades and not like gently suppressed, like hardcore pushback on this issue. And so the general population believes that this is some you know, woo-woo, off-the-beaten-path, like, crazy topic. Um, it's almost like people have been conditioned to not believe that this subject has any relevance or credibility. And so one announcement from the Pentagon or from the Navy is not going to undo decades of telling people they're crazy for talking about this subject. It's been, you know, a long disinformation campaign, if you'd call it that, of making people who even have these experiences think they've lost their mind. And so one announcement that is kind of covered is not going to undo the years of putting people down for talking about their experiences. So there's a lot of work to do there uh, as far as disclosure goes. I'm curious, Marcus, what do you think the central mystery of this Unsolved Mysteries episode is? I think the central mystery is what happened on 1969. What was taking place? What are these crafts? Who or what is inside of these crafts? Why were they taking children? Why were most of the witnesses, most of the quote-unquote victims, why were they children and young? Are there medical experiments happening? Is it a biological thing? Is this some type of testing? What is actually taking place? You know, you think about when we go on expeditions into the ocean and we're looking for creatures and looking for whales and, you know, people go whaling and they put a dart in it and they track the whale for the next year and what where they move and what they eat. And you wonder, is something like that taking place? Are these people being tagged in some way? Are they being tracked? The central mystery is why are these people being taken against their will and what is operating these crafts? Where is this coming from? Um, how are they moving silently? The phenomenon, this unexplained phenomenon, has so many questions around what's taking place. And not to mention this is 1969. There's no iPhones. There's no, the internet's not happening yet. There's no Twitter. None of this is occurring. And so it's a very different world in 1969. It's a very different time period. How many times have has this happened before? And how many people have had these experiences? How many people have been discredited for similar experiences? So I think all of those factors are, are really a part of the mystery. And this episode is only the tip of the iceberg. What kinds of tips are you hoping this episode will elicit? Well, I'm hoping more people will come forward. I'm hoping more people will share their stories. I wonder if there are other events similar to this event that we could track um, over a large swath of, you know, of the country or, you know, of, of area. I th would love more people to come forward about this particular event so we can tie more details together, um, where they're first spotted, uh, you know, where they go to, how, how far is this actual trajectory of this craft. Um, you know, some answers would be nice. Uh, I don't expect necessarily the government to release a statement or us to, to solve this particular mystery, but more information about, around what's going on and more disclosure around what these UFOs are would be amazing. Do you think that people are ready to accept the fact that UFOs, unexplained flying objects, are in fact a real phenomena? You know, I think a lot of people are ready, um, given the interest in the subject matter. 
for years and for decades, you know, UFOs are probably one of, and it's been this way for a while, the most popular subjects on the internet. More websites and pages with information on UFOs exist than anything else next to, let's say, porn, respectfully. And so there is interest, uh, a heavy interest for UFOs. And I think there's a good amount of people who are ready to, to come to terms with this truth. However, you got to remember that, you know, this is a topic that is a stretch of the imagination for a lot of people. Um, the country and the world right now is going through an awakening, uh, an unprecedented awakening in which a lot of people in this country and the rest of the world are just realizing that racism is real, that, you know, racial oppression and systematic oppression is real. This is something that takes place on Earth right here in front of people, often caught on video, often caught on camera, often has witnesses, credible, and it's been happening for hundreds of years. And a lot of people are just realizing that it's real and it affects African-Americans. And while this is a stretch, you have to make that same parallel to the UFO topic. If people aren't ready or willing or are unwilling to notice things like racism or oppression here, right in front of them, I can't expect them to understand that UFOs are real. I understand how much of a stretch it is. Um, I understand that it, it, you have to suspend your imagination or what you understand as reality temporarily in order to even entertain this idea. So I understand how difficult it is to, to arrive at the conclusion, um, but I also understand that society is very stubborn and has trouble coming to terms with things that are right in front of it. And so while most people want disclosure and are ready for that information, um, there's a great deal of the population that lives in denial and, and is not actually ready mentally to even accept simple atrocities that happen right in front of them here on Earth. Well, Marcus, I can't get enough of UFO and Unexplained Phenomena episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. Thank you so much for making this one. It was a real pleasure to talk with you about it. Absolutely. And it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for including me in the podcast. Thank you. We have reached the end of this week's episode. Many thanks to our guest, Marcus A. Clark. Fans of Unsolved Mysteries might remember these words from the late and irreplaceable former host of the show, Robert Stack. For every mystery, someone somewhere knows the truth. Perhaps that person is someone listening. Perhaps it's you. If you or someone you know witnessed the unexplained phenomenon on September 1st, 1969, go to unsolved.com to share your story or to learn more about the hundreds of other mysteries covered by the series. And for more of my takes on true crime and how we cover it in the media, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please subscribe to, rate, and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Stay tuned for our next episode on Unsolved Mysteries, Episode 6, Missing Witness. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>